Hi, everyone. My name is Michelle from the Table in Uniontown. Thanks for tuning into our podcast this week. We're happy you're here. This is the live recording from this Sunday's sermon. We're currently in our sermon series, A Living Faith, discussing the book of James. We hope that as you listen, you'll more deeply understand the truth of God's word and how much he loves you. Let's jump in. Well, good morning, church. If you're new with us this morning, my name is Joey. If I haven't got a chance to meet you yet, I am the pastor here at the table, and it's just great to have you with us this morning. Um, we're in a sermon series right now in the book of James called A Living Faith, and today we're going to read the passage where we get that title, James 2, 14 through 26, through the end of the chapter here. So I'll give you a moment to turn there in your Bibles this morning. Uh, if you brought a Bible with you. If you did not bring a Bible with you, no worries. It's going to be on the screen behind us. And if you don't have a Bible at all, or at least a Bible that you can understand, I'd love to put one in your hands after the service. Come see me. It would be my honor to give you one. So James 2, 14 through 26. <clears throat> what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works. Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, if it does not, in the same way faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Senseless person. Are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works and by works faith was made complete and the scripture was fulfilled that said... Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Justification by faith alone, sola fide. This is a well-held doctrine among many Christians throughout the world and throughout the ages, especially since the Reformation. It's one that you might hold to be true. It's one that I actually hold to be true. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone. And it's in holding to this idea that Martin Luther had his own sort of angsty issues with James's epistle, which he called an epistle of straw. If you ask me, how am I justified before God? How can I be justified before God? Joey, how are you justified before God? How are your sins forgiven? How, despite the fact that I am guilty of many wrongs, and how, despite the fact that I am unfortunately not guilty of many right things, not doing the things I should do. How can God see me as blameless and acceptable? I would tell you that trusting Jesus is the answer. Faith 
as some would put it. I, I say trust because I feel like it's, it's more active than just a passive belief, right? Saving faith is a trust in Jesus' atoning work on the cross. It's, it's the difference between believing that a chair could hold your weight and actually sitting your whole weight on the chair. That's what faith is, but culturally, we've sometimes mangled this word, this concept, to mean something like, light belief, right? Belief that isn't effective for a new way of living. And that's not what faith is. That's not what the the fide in, in sola fide means. James sets up his argument by asking a question that he himself will set out to answer. What good is it? What good is it if someone claims to have faith and does not have works? Can such faith save him? So what are works? By, by works, he just means accompanying action. This is, a, this is a word for today's culture and today's nominal Christianity. Can, can faith save you that isn't accompanied by any of the stuff that God asks of his people? When you read the Bible, when, when you just read the New Testament, when you even just read the Gospels, do you do the stuff that's asked of you? Do you live the life that's described of God's people? Do you, do you avoid the stuff that you're told to abstain from? And maybe more worth, of, worth your consideration still, do you, do you even want to? Do you want to? While our gospel isn't do better and try harder, it's, it's not opposed to effort. In fact, if you're a Christian, you should make every effort to follow Jesus while simultaneously resisting the temptation to believe that your effort saves you. So if someone tells you, if somebody were to tell you that they're a Christian, do you just believe them? Somebody asks you, is, is so-and-so a Christian? I mean, I mean, yeah, they, they say they are. Or do you analyze their life a little bit? Do you, or do you fear analyzing their life a little bit, lest you be judging them in a way that the Bible prohibits judging someone? James frames this conversation like this. If a brother or sister is without clothes or lacks daily food... And you say to them, go in peace, stay warm, be well fed, but you don't give them anything they need, does that do them an ounce of good? And the clear answer is, is no. Your well wishes, your kind sentiments, none of that helps. So, I mean, of course, it's nice that you're nice to them. James isn't opposed to that, but if, if they see you've got a fridge full of food and a closet full of clothing and your house has working heat, how could they care about your empty words? In fact, you could show them how much you wish them well by doing something. What good is it, he asks. And he doesn't ask what good is it in like an open-ended, I'm genuinely curious sort of way. He asks, it's, he asks it in a, I've painted a quite obvious picture here uh, to get you to reach one very specific conclusion sort of way. That's kind of the spirit of James asking this question, what good is it? And that conclusion you should reach is, well, it does no good. It's of no good at all. No one is benefited by that sort of behavior. And, and then he portrays someone objecting to what he said. You have faith, and I have works. And it gets a little confusing. Scholars debate what is James and what is James' opponent in this conversation. But the idea here is something like this. Some have faith, some have works, but not necessarily true that everyone will have both or that everyone does have both. That's sort of the opponent's take, but that's a problem for James. And so he responds, okay, you can show me your faith without works. 
go ahead. He's saying, essentially, you cannot do that. You can't show me faith if it doesn't come with works. But I will show you my faith by my works. What I do, what I do, how I live, will reveal my faith. Now, while he's trashing what we would call easy believism here, this idea that you can just say you believe in God without it bearing any consequences for how you live, more on that in a second, He's equally discarding the notion that you can just do good things with no change of heart, no change of affections, and be saved as well. It's not that the works save you, it's just that the works reveal your heart. And so I would lump in with works what I would call heart motivations. Heart motivations, because you could be a complete secular atheist and be kind and tip your servers well, and care for the poor, and love your neighbor, and you could still be utterly lost. James says, so you think you have faith and I have works? Nonsense. It doesn't work like that either. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by how it works itself out in my heart, in my spending, in my behavior. That's what I'll do. It is faith alone but it isn't faith if it isn't changing you. Faith isn't faith if it doesn't move you to act. Faith isn't faith if it doesn't move you at all. How does James know that? He says, will you believe that God is one? You're a monotheist, a a Trinitarian, perhaps? He says, good, good, that's proper doctrine. That's great. And guess what? Demons believe that too. They have good doctrine, and they shudder. The forces of hell believe that too, and they certainly aren't Christian. They certainly aren't saved, and they certainly aren't children of God. Being a Christian, please hear this, being a Christian isn't less than believing the right things about who God is and what he's accomplished through his son, but it's certainly more. It's not less than that, but it's certainly more. When I was a kid, I would listen to pretty much what I think most kids, most teenagers are listening to, which, at least to some extent, uh, which is some music that, that's maybe perhaps a little morally questionable, uh, mostly rap, full of lyrics that objectified women, glorified violence, hedonism, greed, you name it, right? Now, I may not have been a Christian at this stage in my life. I, I, I was a churchgoer, but maybe not a Christian yet. Uh, and so, but I certainly felt like I was pro-God, right? I was a churchgoer, certainly liked the idea of God, you know, wanted to kind of be on God's side. And so there was this litmus test that I had when listening to this music. It's very helpful. You might want to take notes on this. So I would get like the newest uh, Jay-Z CD or whatever. Do you know who Jay-Z is, Ezra? Is that a person you know still? Okay. Um, <laughs> And I would, I would take out the liner notes. Do you know what liner notes are? Okay, that's where I've lost you. Good. If you're below the age of 25, liner notes, when you would buy a CD or a cassette, for an 8-track for some of you, I don't know if they had liner notes, you would pull this booklet out of the front plastic case, and it would sometimes have the lyrics if you were lucky. It would have, like, who produced the songs and all that. And I would flip through these liner notes, and I would get to the thank yous. And I would get to the thank yous, and I would be like, did they thank God first? (laughs) Let me check, let me check, let me check. There it is. First of all, I want to thank God without you this record where I basically broke all 10 of the commandments 400 times and told all the kids listening to this music to do the same. Without you, Lord, it would not have been possible. 
Thank you. And for me, as a very naive kid, I would read that and be like, cool, they're team God, so we're good, same team. (laughs) Now, and if they didn't do that, by the way, I'd be like, oh, this is a bad person. They did not thank God in this record. Now, if we believe that faith is just, do you believe in God, or maybe more specifically, do you believe in Jesus, yes or no, then we're good. But if we believe that, that there's something more, something about faith that has to rub off on your whole life, and what you say and do and desire and the reason that you get out of bed every morning, then I'm going to think that maybe these people whose liner notes I was, I was perusing, maybe they weren't Christians at all yet. I'm not judging them. I'm just holding the things they say up to James 2, 18 and 19. I'm asking the question, are they not unlike the demons? Please note, I'm not saying they are demons. I'm saying, are they not unlike the demons? who maybe believe some orthodox things about God and yet do not really love him at all. The demons hate him, in fact. They know who, they, who he is, they affirm who he is, and they hate it. And we're warned not to be like them. Now don't misread this, don't mishear this, don't misunderstand this. It's not go do, go do more because if you don't do enough, you won't be saved. Rather, it's not unlike what we talked about last week with mercy. If you were here last week, do you remember that? We said it's not that you get mercy by showing mercy. You don't get mercy by showing mercy. Rather, it's that if you're not merciful, perhaps it's true of you that you just haven't yet received God's mercy. In the same way, it's not work harder to be saved because we do, in fact, believe that you're saved or justified by faith alone. Rather, it's these accompanying works, words, attitudes, and affections. It's these things that show that your faith is alive. The demons in hell, they don't have faith. They haven't put their trust in Jesus. They have belief. They know of something that is true, and they don't like it. Do you have faith? In Jesus, saving faith, trusting faith in Jesus. If you do, you should affect it, you should expect it to affect every area of your life. If you think the gospel or the divinity of Christ, even, is just a thing to believe in the same way you believe that the grass is green and that two plus two is four, then James says, senseless person. You are a senseless person for thinking that. It's a little harsh, James. It's James' words, not mine. It's senseless, it's foolish, it misunderstands the entirety of what faith in Jesus is. He says, if, if, are you now willing to learn that faith without works is useless, meaning that it cannot save you? And then he goes to two examples from the Hebrew scriptures, which his audience would have known quite well. First of all, he says this, wasn't Abraham, our father, justified by works in offering Isaac, his son, at the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and, and, by works we mean, and by works faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, is certainly an example that they would hold in high esteem. Some of you have trailed off to start singing that song, Father Abraham, and that's okay. Um, In Genesis 22, there's this story about Abraham that he's referring to, and I'm going to read it real quick uh, because it's short. It'll be on the screen behind me. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son Isaac, whom you love. 
Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of the young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his, to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship, and then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. If you've not read this story for the first time, it is shocking you. In his hand, he took the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. Then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, my father. And he replied, here I am, my son. Isaac said, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Nothing. If you're a parent, nothing your kid will ask you will com- be comparably awkward to this scenario, right? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. When they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up, saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place the Lord will provide. So today it is said it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command." Abraham went back to his young men, and they got up and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham settled in Beersheba. This is the story that James is referencing. God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son, and Abraham says, I'm on it. Not, not because he doesn't care about his son. He, he clearly does, but because he trusts God deeply. He knows this God is so good, and he wouldn't lead him anywhere where he wouldn't want to be. And of course, God provides a ram in the thicket where rams are prone to get caught. But here's the thing. That that wasn't the faith being credited to Abraham as righteousness. Rather, that happens seven chapters earlier in Genesis 15, 6. God says, look at the sky. Do you see those stars up there? Your offspring will be just as numerous. And Abraham's like, I believe that instantly. And that is where his faith is credited to him as righteousness. But lest that faith be just mere words, mere lip service, we see soon after when when faith is tested that it produces action. Abraham trusts God enough to lay his son on the altar. Faith acting together with works and made complete by them. Abraham was called God's friend. Don't you want to be too? There was nothing more valuable in Abraham's life than faith in God, than God himself. But you only find out that that's true of you through testing. You only find out that that's true of you when the rubber meets the road and you have to put up or shut up. Are you all in with Jesus this morning? Is your life about this Jesus? 
That's what faith is. It's not this garbage where you just believe something. I believe the grass is green, but I, I don't have faith in grass. You can, you can believe that Jesus is Lord, that that's, that that's true of him, but you can, you can do that while also never really living under his lordship. It can be a, a grass is green sort of fact in your head, and that, that will never save you. That's dead faith. That's like, thank God in the liner notes and live like a child of hell sort of faith. It cannot save you. In another example by James, we learn of the faith of Rahab the prostitute, who I think if she were here with us today would say, just Rahab is fine, honestly. <laughs> Thanks, but, you know. Um, jo- Joshua was sending spies to Jericho, and she welcomed them into her home. She hid them and kept them until it was safe, and then she sent them out the other way. She didn't simply wish them well, she, she put them up. She derailed the search for them. She kept them safe. And then when Jericho was invaded, Rahab and anyone in her home, they were spared. They were all safe. Without her doing the works, without her doing the works, without her action, if only it were just words, she would, if, if she just said, good luck to you guys, I hope nothing bad happens to you. If it were just that, she would have been killed when Jericho was invaded, but instead she was saved by the work she did. One commentator suggests that James uses this example because foreign spies, they don't seem like the sort of people you would want to welcome, much like the poor aren't necessarily the people that you would naturally desire to welcome who James has been talking about so far in this book. Rahab and Abraham are examples of more than easy believism and mere lip service, but instead faith in action, producing results in someone's life. James closes with, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Faith without works is, is a body without a spirit. It's a corpse. It's dead. It's fit only for the grave. It's not living. It's not active. It's not healthy. It's not vital. Little church, I hope you haven't fallen for the very culturally acceptable faith in Jesus that requires no action. The faith in Jesus that merely requires like a a, a Bible verse in your Instagram bio. The faith that requires only a Christian tattoo or a sporadic church attendance. The kind of faith that requires just lip service to Jesus instead of following him with all you've got, even and especially when fidelity to Christ takes you places that cause discomfort in our culture. I hope you haven't settled for that kind of faith. I hope you're not feeling like you live on the sidelines of Christianity. The path of least resistance is a fake, powerless faith that never leads you anywhere deeper with God. And maybe this morning some of you are living that. Of course I'm a Christian. I go to church. Of course, I mean, I'm a Christian. I vote this way. I'm a Christian. I said the sinner's prayer once. I'm a Christian, I homeschool my kids, or my kids go to a Christian school. There are all sorts of works you can do that are not in themselves the work that accompanies true faith. These are things that aren't bad at all necessarily. Some of them are good, but they aren't the works that overflow naturally out of a heart that loves Jesus and wants nothing more than to be close to him. There are works that are easier, but they are no substitute for the life of a living faith. 
They're not the works that James is talking about. And so if you love him today, if you, if you don't love Jesus today, rather, if you don't love him today, if you have maybe like an inherited faith, one that you just got from your parents dragging you to church as a kid and you've just kind of inherited, I guess I'm a Christian because my parents and their parents, they were all Christians. If you have something like that, but, but you don't have any real affection for Jesus that gives you the desire to live a different way, if you have a faith that doesn't affect your daily life, the way you treat people, the way you spend your money, if it doesn't affect your sexuality, if it's not your primary identity, you might have a dead faith. But I have good news for you this morning. If this is you, if I've described you, if you've, as I've been speaking, reflected and thought, yeah, I think this is me. I think my faith is long deceased. If you sit here this morning and you wonder if you're a lost cause, I have good news for you. I have news that shouldn't surprise you if you know anything about the Bible, if you know anything about our God, if you know anything about Jesus. And it's this. God resurrects the dead. God breathes new life into into things. As long as you're alive, as long as you're above ground, as long as you have a pulse, you have a chance to repent and follow Jesus. You have an opportunity to have a living faith It is accompanied by the work that flows out of a a heart fully alive in Christ. Michelle, you can come up. So this warning from James is not given to to the church. It's not given to us to bring despair. Not given to us to bring despair. Not not given to us to bring a feeling of defeat or of lostness. But but it's, it's given to bring those who aren't right with God even though they claim to be, even though they might have thought they were, this word comes, this, this admonition comes to bring them back to him. And churches across America this morning, I fear, are, are full of people who need this warning. Come back to Jesus. Let God resurrect your faith into the kind of faith in Jesus that can save you. Ask the Spirit of God to work in your heart. Today could be the day that God takes sort of the, the spiritual defibrillators and shocks your faith back to life. And nothing has the power to do that more than the gospel of Jesus does. Remembering what Jesus did for us. The whole of this gospel message is that God sent his son to die for you. Back in Genesis 22 that I read maybe 10 minutes ago, remember this, start in verse 11 and 12. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And in the gospel, we can say, now we know that you love us, that you did not withhold your son from us, your only son. But while Isaac was spared, Jesus was not. Jesus was the blameless lamb of God who takes away our sin, and we remember this every week as we take communion. We remember every week that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and after he gave thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, again giving thanks. He said, this is a new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. 
And so we take communion every week here at the table by taking the bread and we dip it in the cup and we remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. We put our faith in what Jesus did as the means for us to be justified and made right with God. And this faith, this faith is shown to be living and active by how we live when we leave this place, by how we live in light of it. Maybe in light of the story of Abraham that James references in today's passage, you should ask this question. What is it from my life that needs placed on the altar? What is God asking me to place on the altar? Not a a person, surely. Not a literal altar even. but, But what is it that needs killed off in my life that I'm holding dear? In the same way that that someone would hesitate to put their only son on the altar, there are some sins that you love and perhaps don't want to kill off in your life for the glory of God. God, you, you can have my Sunday mornings, you might say. You can have my Sunday mornings. Hour and 15 minutes, maybe two and a half if I stay for a long lunch. You can have those. But my greed, my lust, my me first mentality... Those are mine. Those are mine. You can't touch those. My desire to be popular in a culture where Jesus is not. My time, you get that time on Sunday, the rest is mine. My anger, my treatment of people that I don't like so much. What is it? What is that thing in your life that you're hesitating to give the Lord in exchange for a more vibrant living faith? For a closer walk with him, for a living faith. If this morning you have doubts about the vitality of your faith, if you feel like maybe your faith is close to dying, or maybe it's long since past, take them before the Lord in this moment that we have together leading up to communion. Ask him to reveal his perspective on the matter. Ask him to reveal his perspective on your heart, on your faith, on how you've walked it out. Repent, change, Walk closely with the Lord from today forward. He loves you, and he is always ready and eager to welcome repentant sinners. My friends Randy and Rachel are going to be available on either side of the room to pray for you. If if there's something related to this that you need prayer for this morning, or if there's something else that you just need a friend to put a hand on your shoulder and and take, take some concern of yours to the Lord, they would love to do that with you. Communion is available towards the back on my left and gluten-free, no seriously, gluten-free communion is available towards the back on my right. Uh, If you were here last week, you know why that's funny. I'm going to pray, and then you can take communion whenever you see fit. Father, um, we're all hypocrites sometimes. We all at some point or another have walked differently than we've talked. We've claimed a faith on one hand while living something different on the other. I know it's not just me, it's everyone sitting here that loves you. But some of us have, have lived in that dissonance for so long that our faith is, is dead. It's not the kind of faith that can save anyone. And so I pray especially for my brothers and sisters here, if there's somebody or many people with that experience, God, would you resurrect their faith this morning? Would today be the day that you see their faith come back to life? for their works to accompany their faith, for for them to walk what they're talking. God, I know you love every person here. I know that you love, you love to forgive sinners. 
You love to welcome sinners. You delight in it. And we're just thankful that that's how you are and that, that we know that that's true because of the fact that you sent your son. And it's in his name we pray this morning. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to our Sunday service. If you're interested in joining us in the future, you can find us at 17766 Cleveland Avenue Northwest on Sunday mornings at 10. Additionally, we host a meal every first and third Sunday after service in order to fellowship with one another. Visit aseatforyou.org for more information. We hope you'll join us next week. Go in peace.